This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. The Premier League is heating up, so let's just stick a World Cup in there and get back to this on Boxing Day. Have any Arsenal fans said mind the gap yet? A five-point lead at the top after Brentford shot Pep at the Etihad. Perhaps the greatest result in their history definitely deserved as Ivan Tony, capital letters, sends a message to Gareth Southgate. Antonio Conte finally decides to go full Ardiles or are they a bit lucky as Rodrigo Bentancourt drags them to victory over Leeds? Are we taking Arsenal so seriously we don't have time to take Newcastle seriously? fifth straight win over out of sorts Chelsea for whom this break capital letters again can't come soon enough Garnacho wins it late for Man United at Fulham Darwin Nunes is good again Leicester are good again and whose crisis is bigger Moyes or Lampard will be utterly outraged by the England squad discuss Joe Lysett's challenge to Qatar ambassador David Beckham find out where David Platt is answer your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly On the panel today, Jonathan Wilson, welcome. Evening. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Hello, Troy Townsend. Ah, good evening. Good evening. And hello, John Bruin. Hello. How are you? All right. Uh, I'm very good, thanks. Um, Let's start the Etihad. Manchester City 1, Brentford 2. Thomas Frank says, probably the biggest result in the club's history. I mean, we all remember the 8-0 win over Brighton in the Football League South War Cup on the 4th of March, 1944. I mean, Wilson probably does remember that. Um, do you do you think, Wilson, the biggest result in your history can be in the middle of a season? It feels like it is statistically their best win ever, but it also can't be because it doesn't mean anything apart from three points. Well, I, I guess you then get into the, the question of what's the point of the teams who aren't the, you know, the big six, seven, whatever whatever that now is. I, I, yeah, you might argue that for Brentford, it, it was getting promoted. I, I, I confess I can't remember exactly the seconds in which they confirmed promotion. It was a playoff win, wasn't it? I don't know. As I say, I don't remember. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's been the most eye-catching win since they returned to the Premier League. I don't know whether 75 years ago they had any particularly eye-catching wins. But yeah, even I'd be reluctant to, to quibble with Thomas Frank after well, I just be looking to quibble with him. He seems a very energetic man who'd soon overwhelm me with his energy. But he, uh, yeah, it's... he would be better at he'd be better at quibbling. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, sure. absolutely. You're quite good at it. Well, no, I'm actually be better at quibbling, but it's it, it's more the counter quibble. That, that's where I think I'd. I'd uh... I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm certainly not going to quibble with you about this discussion. Um, the thing is, Troy, they absolutely. This wasn't smash and grab, was it? They absolutely deserved this win. Oh, it was a it was a magnificent performance, wasn't it? Um, they set up well. They denied City space in and around the box. You know, they were often defending with 10 men in their box um, and obviously their keeper. But it was the the counter-attack that was so exciting for me, the way that they drove forward and, and caused City no ends of problems in that way. And obviously that's the way that they got the winner, uh, potentially should have got another two after that. One cleared off the line from uh, Kevin De Bruyne. It was just a really good performance, a really, really top-class performance from a City side that hadn't, sorry, from a Brentford side that hadn't won away from home so far um, in the Prem and City who were looking to break all kind of records at home for the day. So, yeah, I, I was surprised that Diaz didn't play because 
I felt that a Diaz up against an Ivan Tony, it's a different kind of game. You know, that was Brentford's ploy was to go long to 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 Tony and then bring everyone into play. And I was really surprised for this one that Diaz didn't play. I know he's not been playing many games lately, but you know, up against the other two centre halves, you're always going to bet for for Ivan Tony to do that. And what what a great game he had. Yeah, Bill says, is Ivan Tony chartering his own plane? It was interesting, John. Um, Gary Lineker on Match of the Day asked if if Ivan Tony had done that last week, would it have made a difference? I, I don't think it would. No, because uh, Gareth Southgate. I mean, he says he picks on form, but he picks players that he likes. But he sticks with those. I mean, obviously, Harry Maguire's presence in the squad is testament to that. But uh, remember, uh, Ivan Tony was called up to the England squad and it didn't feel like there was a great... It, it didn't really happen for him during that during that that, that session of, of England matches. I think Ivan Tony... It's, it's one of those things, isn't it? England always looking for something different. The wild card. Uh, and Ivan Tony could yeah. have been that player, but he isn't going to be that player. And Callum Wilson... You can't say he doesn't deserve to be there. I suppose the only question I would have over for Callum Wilson over Ivan Tony is that I probably trust Ivan Tony's fitness a bit more. Now, whether that matters within a, a short tournament like that, or the, actually it may matter even more because of that, that time period. But actually, you asked about you asked Jonathan about the uh, Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank, I, I do think, is a great salesman for Brentford. He's done a great job. He's a pretty good salesman for himself as well, isn't he? And actually... Uh, if you probably if you looked over, uh, I mean, he was linked with the Aston Villa job not too long ago, um, and but he could, you know, he's one of these that I imagine Thomas Frank has a pretty up to date CV, yeah, in in a ring binder or something like that. I think he's ready to go at any time. He's ready to go. He's ready to go. Push the PowerPoint point. Off we go. Now I'm not saying he wants to leave Brentford. Don't get excited or anything like that. But I think if if the, he's an ambitious guy and he deserves to be an ambitious guy, he's a good manager. But this season, you've got that match against Manchester United, which I went to that game, and he said, you know, this is one of the greatest matches results in our history. And then he goes to City, and that is a better result, it has to be said. And he, he was correct in saying that, you know, they're probably the best team in the world, and we've pulled off this result, we're little Brentford. So, well done, Thomas Frank, but there's a guy with his eye on what's next. Fair enough. Yeah. Do managers need CVs? I mean, like, what is it? No, do they have... You should be everyone knows sort of where they've been. They're their A-level well, results. Well, what, that's Abitur, yeah. Thomas Frank's Abitur yeah, well, that he's done and his interest in fell walking yeah, Steve, Steve McLaren's full clean driving licence. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> it, I mean, but there the, the was that idea, wasn't there, that back in the... Um, I think when Steve McLaren, actually, the reason I mentioned his name is when he got a couple of jobs, and I'm thinking of the Middlesbrough one and also maybe the England job that... Steve McLaren gave the best presentation. Well, the problem for Thomas Frank is, I don't know if, I, mean, I presume he was educated in Denmark, but the Danish marking system is one of the most bonkers things in the world. Are you, are you aware of this? I'm not aware of the Danish marking system. I'm not. So the equivalent of an A is a 12. The equivalent of a B is a 10. Right. The equivalent of a C is a 7. The equivalent of a D is a 4. The equivalent of an E is a 0, 2. Right. I think I think they do that in England now. I mean, I, th- I know we're all old. Yeah, no, yeah, but but but, but don't get A's and A levels. Yeah, yeah, but 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 it's not a contiguous scale. It goes 12, 10, 7, oh, right. 4, 0, 2, 0, 0, minus three. Wow. Okay. And I think the reason for that is that yes. um, when you like, apply for university or something, you have to achieve a certain total score. So yeah, you need you need to get I don't know thirty five. So if you get three twelves but also minus three, you don't get in. 
Oh, I see. I, I, I think that's how it I, I just I just knocked further maths off my CV because I got a D and I just didn't want anyone to know about it. Um, we should probably talk about the football a bit more than the Danish marking system, Troy. Um, is that a blueprint then for how to beat City? To, to, to knock it long in a kind of... It, it wasn't just total agriculture, was it? They knew what they were doing. They had people around Ivan Tony. They they fed off that and then they played good football off the back of it. But it, it wasn't only that, Matt. And, and we can't say whether that's a blueprint because I think teams have, have, have beaten Man City before and other teams have tried to mimic the way that they have and it just hasn't worked. So it depends on your personnel. But it also depends on those players being switched on for the whole game. And also, you know, in a defensive manner, like I said, they just crowded every time the ball was whipped in for a cross. They made sure that I don't think they were particularly marking. They were just crowding the box and making sure that um, City players couldn't get shots off. The only one that did and, and did with a plum was obviously Foden, but Harlan was was marked as as well as I've seen him, you know, throughout the, the time that he's 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 had it over here when he's been breaking all kind of records. And if one didn't get him, the other one got him or he was slipping over. I don't know what boots he was wearing, but he was slipping over. So you've got to credit the whole setup because if one chink of that armory doesn't work, then they don't get that result. And they even made changes and the players who came on, you know, did exactly the same job. It was an outstanding performance from Brentford. I don't even want to talk about City's weaknesses at the time because Brentford exposed them and did so well to get the result. It's, you know, it's, it's easy to say, okay, sit deep. You put a man either side of Holland, hit on hit them on the break. The quality of those two breaks, I mean, the the there was clearly the the, the plan to go uh, long to Tony, and then the way they always got four men around him showed a level of organisation. It wasn't simply going along. But the quality of those two breaks in injury time, the one they scored from, then the one where it was clearance off the line, was exceptional. And both of those, I mean, Tony clearly, but also. The two substitutes, Wissa and um, Josh De Silva, and the, particularly the goal, the, the way that Wissa makes up, yeah, you know, he just charges what eighty yards. Um, I mean, I, I guess he, you know, he couldn't have done that had he been on from the start. I think he came on seventy-four minutes, something like that. There's not many teams a have that level of organisation to break as effectively as that. And I think the fact that those two breaks are quite similar in shape suggests it was a plan. Um, but also, the teams don't have the the depth of squad to have. Two players who can do that coming off the bench. And Rico Henry, I thought, was absolutely brilliant in, in this game. And I, I imagine... He, well, p- p- performing a similar role yeah, before he went off. Yeah, yeah. and you know, um, if he doesn't have a CV, it, he could get one. And then people would sniff around and like to have a look at that CV. Let's go to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Spurs 4, Leeds 3, just because it was a brilliant game. Um, I don't really know how you analyse a game of football like this, Troy, apart from... <laughs> Tottenham, did Tottenham get away with it? Did they deserve it? I, I, I can't really tell. Uh, this was the game I focused on Saturday afternoon. I'm really pleased I did because it was, yeah, it's back to a throwback. You, you say our dealers at the beginning, it was a throwback to his teams. It was a throwback to Bielsa's leads when they first came into the Premier League. I don't know how Spurs won. I, I honestly don't know how Spurs won. My brother-in-law went to the game. Sorry, my son-in-law. My brother-in-law's a lot older. Um, and left at 3-2. Okay, left at 3-2. Yeah, Excellent. absolutely. He always does. When Spurs are losing, he thinks there's not long to go. I'm bolting out the door. Defensively, this game was horrendous. So anyone that's a defensive coach needs to look away now. Um, Eric Dyer called up for the England squad. 
I, I thought had had a really, really bad game and I thought Dyer's had a half-decent season, but Spurs' defence looked all over the place. There was a couple of question marks against Hugo Lloris as well and his positioning. But then you could say the same for Leeds. You know, Kulachevsky was outstanding but was helped quite a lot by some very, very poor defending. But it was a game that kept you on your toes. Spurs were being booed off at half-time. Emerson was booed after a shot when I think it went clean out of uh, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And it looked like just one of those where, you know, Leeds were going to win. All the pressure was going to be on Conte again. But there's something about this Spurs side, even in adversity, where at times they managed to pull something around. And Benton Kerr, who would have matched Kulicheski for man of the match, came up with two great strikes, um, which again, one of them I'm going to question the goalkeeping on. Um, but it gave them a win. And uh, lo and behold, still provides a little bit of optimism for Spurs, even though they got knocked out of obviously the Carabao Cup at the week, uh, midweek, because they're up there. They're in fourth. You could still say they're challenging. They're Obviously, they, they're through to the Champions League. I would question defensively what is going on. And I think Conte can't wait for January. Um, but they're winning games that maybe they shouldn't. I'm not sure if that's the best summary, but it's the one that I saw anyway. Yeah, no, no, that sounds about right. Bentancourt, um, Wilson, is, a, is an interesting player. After the game, Kulisevsky said he's one of the most underrated players in the world. It's nice to have another. We haven't had a really underrated player for a while. Can we put Bentancourt in that list? I think you probably could have done about a month ago. I think he's been very obviously brilliant for about a month. And he started scoring goals as well. And you know, he got the winner at um, Bournemouth as well, didn't he? But yeah, he, he, he's such a complete player that he's, you know, he's ostensibly a holding midfielder, but he also does arrive late in the box. Um, he's very good at picking up the pieces just outside the box. And I think that's where Leeds, from a defensive point of view, like the fourth goal, I know was, was just horrible. Um, but I think to an extent, it's explicable just by exhaustion. And yeah, they, they highlighted on Match of the Day that Liam Cooper not getting back, but he just looked absolutely shattered. Um, and, you know, Liam Cooper's not that young and it was the 87th minute. So I, I sort of understand why he'd be shattered playing that style of football. But it's the second and third goals. I think the defending is just awful. That both of them, they end up with six players, six outfield players in the box and a man unmarked on the edge of the box. And that's, you know, you've got the players back, but just the disposition of them is totally wrong. And that seems to me something pretty basic that shouldn't be happening. John, Kulusevsky's an interesting player, isn't he? Because he, he can beat, people despite sort of looking at him neither being quick or like devastatingly skillful just by sort of moving he just sort of moves past people he's quite big as well isn't he so but we have had skillful big players before let's let's wander down that cliche lane you know Zinedine Zidane being one and he's perhaps not on that level but He's a very skillful player and he's also um, something of a talisman to Tottenham, isn't he? They missed him terribly when he wasn't around. Conte is is doing a job there. I just don't think either he's happy or a lot of the Spurs fans are happy. The one thing I'd say, and this refers back to, to both Leeds and Tottenham, um, if you're a manager, okay, so Jesse Marsh you know, wins a game 4-3 and then loses a game 4-3. If your matches are that out of control... Um, are you doing a good job? That's the question I, I would ask of him. And I would also suggest that a lot of the games that Tottenham have been involved in recently, say the Sporting Lisbon game, for example, the games have been have got out of control of what Conte is, a manager that likes to you know, grasp hold of the game and strangle it. 
Um, but somehow we are at a point where Tottenham go into the winter break uh, in fourth and I'm not really sure how. And I'm not even sure anyone knows. No, um, we should... Um, Leeds fans will be annoyed if we don't mention Kane's goal. It does look like Longley's foul yes, Melier yes. there, don't you think, Wilson? Yeah, completely. John Bruins confirmed. Yeah, it. no, we, I agree. We all yeah. think that. Um, although Kane did very well, didn't he? Uh, get him on that plane. Lovely first touch. Lovely goal. Boom. Big man. Um, Jim, absolutely skillful big man. Yeah. Uh, Jim says, given that Song Hoon Min looked like a trendy college professor at the weekend, what subject do you reckon he's teach? He had an absolutely tremendous cardigan on, didn't he? And actually, with his cardigan and his little glasses, he looked so unlike a devastatingly brilliant footballer. It was almost like a sort of superhero movie where he'd just, he'd never get picked. He'd be in that cardigan and glasses and then eventually someone would say, oh, just pick that guy. I bet he's okay. And then they realise it's, the, you know, the, the, one of the greatest footballers on on earth. Maybe that's overstating it. He looked like one of these crypto kids that are <laughs> currently on the run from the FBI. Yes. You know, that's We do plan actually to do another crypto special, but hopefully one that we understand this time <laughs> be, uh, after the World Cup. Um, Newcastle won Chelsea nil. Uh, Bob says, at what point will the likes of Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United and Man City start looking to Cambridge United to learn how to win a game at St. James's Park? And that's how you know you're going to get a question asked on this pod. Um, is is that is that Wilson a statement win? Another one, or is a win against Chelsea a statement win at the moment? What 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 was this? I, I don't think Newcastle have actually had a statement win this season. Yeah, they often win at Tottenham. I think this is Chelsea side were there for the beating. But the point is, Newcastle are winning these games and they are third in the table. And uh, given that I think there's understandable scepticism as to whether Arsenal can can keep it going. They're only two points behind Manchester City. I admittedly haven't played a game more. But if you're only two points behind the favours for the title, you're definitely in the title race, aren't you? Um, and I, I suspect their ambitions at the start of the season were to qualify for the Europa League, get in the top six. But I, I think when they come back after Christmas, it, it should be top four. And and who knows if City have a post-World Cup wobble and nobody quite knows how players are going to react to the to the World Cup. What, why... Why? Why wouldn't they be in a? I mean, yeah, they're clearly not favourites for the title race. They're clearly outsiders in it. But I think they are in it. I wonder, John, if there's a a bit like with Leicester when they won the league. That that, and it's perhaps too early to say this about Newcastle. And then I don't think they'll win the league, but you know who knows. That you still go and go. Look, Joe Willock, Longstaff, Joe Linton. This is they're not that good. We'll probably beat them. And actually, that's that's part of that. That sort of underestimating Leicester is a huge part, I think, of why they won that title and I don't know if there's a sort of similar feeling with looking at Newcastle now you look at the team on paper and go it's not it's got some great players but some kind of okay players when Leicester won the league uh I think it's fair to say for, for all the romance of that that the rest of the Premier League was not at its best uh or all the other contenders and there is a case that beyond Manchester City and say Arsenal blow up then Newcastle could pull off what we have to, you know, do do a Leicester. Um, how well are they set up for after the World Cup? Well, quite a few of the players you've mentioned aren't going to the World Cup. You know, Sven Botman is their star central defender. He isn't going. Okay, they'll be concerned. Bruno Guimaraes plays a bit, might play a bit. Um, Callum Wilson, you know, is a reserve. I suppose one of the things is that Eddie Howe. You know, they've got all this momentum. And then, of course, there is six weeks when they're not away. But, I mean, one of the things about 
at Newcastle at the moment is, um, and, and, and this probably won't be a popular comparison, but you compare them to Manchester City in their early days of switching over from being, you know, the for previous Manchester City to the cash-rich one. Players like uh, Joe Willock, who obviously scored the goal last night, uh, uh, Miguel Almiron, remind me of players like... Uh, it was like Stephen Island was one of the star players for Manchester City, wasn't he? And then I, I, I worry for them because th- those are good players and they've done a great job for the club. And uh, you wonder at what point the club starts stops being sentimental about them and moves them on because obviously the, the, the trajectory is is moving forward. And even someone like Eddie Howe is doing such a great job that, that what's his ceiling? And we, we don't know any of these factors. Um, but when it comes to this season, Newcastle are in a great position. We're only 14, 15 matches in. Uh, long way to go, but they're well set up. They're in absolute dreamland. The fans are really enjoying themselves. Uh, I hope you're enjoying yourselves. Um, perhaps not everybody else is enjoying it, but that's sort of the point of Newcastle these days, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, on that subject, a group of Newcastle fans staged a silent protest against the club's Saudi owners, uh, head of the game, uh, members of... Uh, Newcastle United Football Club fans against sports washing gathered outside St James's Park. It wasn't a huge protest, um, but you know credit to them for doing it. And, and what they said actually is that a lot of the criticism and abuse that they've had on social media hasn't come from real Newcastle fans. And the reception they got from Newcastle fans, whether they agreed or disagreed with the protest, was you know they are you know they valued their right to peacefully protest about this thing. So that is uh, it's an interesting sign, and, and you know given. That is not, it's not easy to protest against your football team when they are playing so well and winning, you know, given the reaction that you will get. So um, uh, good for them. Um, three defeats in a row for Chelsea Wilson. Is Graham Potter in crisis? Are Chelsea in crisis? What's happening? But yeah, yeah. Uh, I th- well, I think as well that the games before that, when with, with hindsight, you sort of realise Kepler maybe papered over the cracks a bit. And, the, you know, the game away at Villa, for instance, they, they played pretty poorly and got away with it. Uh, the game at Palace, they, they needed that last the brilliant last minute goal from Conor Gallagher. So I think there was a sort of sense of of Potter sort of slowly knitting things together, and actually maybe maybe it was the opposite. Maybe kind of getting results that performance didn't didn't quite deserve. But I think you look at the squad; it's pretty unbalanced. I think the injury to East James has really hammered them, exposed uh, weaknesses there. Um, yeah, they have had a lot of. Defensive injuries with Fafana being out and Koulibaly and, and Chilwell now as well, and I think that would would hit any squad. But I, I think also they just look a squad that doesn't fit together, and and you come back to this basic point that we've been saying all season that they invested a lot of money over the summer, um, what 100, 150 million quid over the summer, or more, yeah, than something that. like that, a lot of money, a, a huge amount of money, maybe even two hundred million over the summer, and then sacked the bloke who'd done the job, and, you know, immediately as soon as the window was over. And this wasn't that they sacked the manager, but actually the sporting director had been doing it. There wasn't a sporting director. So Tuchel was as involved in recruitment as any manager at a top six club is these days. And yet still they get rid of him. So if you're Raheem Sterling, and Sterling sort of raised this, I thought, yeah, pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty mildly, pretty politely, just sort of as, it wasn't sort of a rant, it wasn't an attack at anybody, just sort of said, well, I don't really know what I'm doing because... This isn't the manager who signed me, and I don't particularly want to play at wing back. I'll do it, but I want to play as a forward. That's why I came here. And you sort of think all those players arrived in the summer must be going through a similar process of thinking, well, 
this isn't what I signed up to. What does this new bloke want? That's not necessarily casting aspersions on Potter or, or what, what his ceiling may be. It's just saying, he's, well, he's not the bloke who signed me. and I don't really know what's going on. So I, I'm not surprised there's, there's sort of confusion there. And there were structural problems there even before Bramwich left that um, they shouldn't be that reliant on Thiago Silva. You can't, and brilliant as he's been in the last two years, you can't be that reliant on somebody who's now 38. Uh, Lukaku not working out means there's a hole in centre forward and Bamiyang's come in, but he's obviously a short-term fix. The back of midfield needs sorting out because uh, Jorginho and Kante both alongside of 30, both out of contract in the summer and neither of them have signed a new contract. So there's doubts there. If Kante is not fit, we don't have a ball winner. You don't have a ball winner, exposes back three, and that's very exposable when Thiago Silva's there and has no pace. So there's all kinds of problems in that squad. But I don't think of particularly to do with Potter, but he, he I suspect, will take the blame for it. Graham Potter, like a few managers we've mentioned and are going to mention, uh, he's going to have to give good training camp, isn't he? Like this is this is going to be the you know the the those of us still on the Premier League beat up. There's going to be a lot of talk about training camps, what went on in the training camp, uh, and there's some sort of training camp long reads. I'm looking forward to the training camp long reads. It's only going to be like four Chelsea players there, aren't they? I mean, you know, how much work can he do with? I can't think of one. Obama Young is there Georgini, with Jorginho. Jorginho, I guess you know, that's it. It's just yeah, Jorginho and Aubameyang. Keep passing it to him, and that's it. And the rest of them just come back from the World Cup. Set Chilwell and James, I guess, just sort of in the rehab centre. Anyway, Fafana, um, yeah, yeah for that's true. Um, anyway, that'll do for part one. Part two will begin uh, at Molyneux. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Thursday night, um, still a handful of tickets left for the live show at Earth in Hackney. Come along, please, at theguardian.com slash guardian live, uh, streamed around the world. Um, and so you can all come and watch us and uh, it will be good. And there are some special guests and we'll have a nice time. Uh, Wolves nil, Arsenal 2. Um, uh, we've mentioned Arsenal a bit, um, but this Troy felt like a very... It wasn't a fascinating game. It wasn't a brilliant game, but they just did the job, Arsenal. And and that's what title winners, question mark, do. Yeah, absolutely. It's what used to be called a workmanlike performance, didn't it? With a touch of class, um, you know, at the end of, of two very, very well-constructed goals, to be totally honest. But for me... What if you were to lie, what if you were to lie about them, Troy? <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, I have to go to the penalty decision that, you know, decides that the early part of the game or the lack of the penalty decision, I, I still don't know what happened and how they came to that decision. Apparently, you know, they're looking at the offside. Uh, I, I, I don't know, but I don't know how it cannot be given at a penalty if you've, as a penalty, if you've not, if you've got multiple views of that incident. I just really, really don't know. And I think that sets the tone because if, if Wolves do get a pen and do score the pen and, and um, was it Saliba or Gabriel's, someone gets sent off. Saliba it was, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. And he gets sent off. Then it's a totally different game that we're looking about, looking at. But I suppose we could say that about a few games this season. And, and in the end, Arsenal, you know, got on top, particularly second half. It was a bit of a mundane game, but ultimately they did what they had to do. And, you know, in the long run, I don't think they care. They've gone five points clear. Um, and you know they look go to this break with 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 great options of what they do come come Boxing Day. I confess, John, when they were discussing the penalty decision at length, my mind wandered, and I just thought, well, it wasn't given, so I'm just going to move on with the football match. But maybe you know, I, so is Troy spot on? Is that that was definitely a penalty? 
I've got to confess, a similar wandering of mine, but I didn't think it was quite as cast Ooh. iron as, as Troy did. I mean, it seemed like a bit of a coming Ooh. together, that type of thing. Wilson, the deciding vote? Well, uh, I think it was a foul. Uh, I don't think it would be a red card because I think okay. you could say he was close play. enough to, to make a tackle. But I also think it was offside, wasn't it? That's what I think. No. No, it wasn't. Was it given offside in the end? It was, no, because they, they, they didn't go back to look at the offside because they decided it wasn't a foul. Saying they were wrong to say it wasn't a foul. But I I mean, look, I, I was pausing on the, on the TV, uh, which I accept is not <laughs> as accurate as as other ways of checking these things. But it, it, it looked offside to I me. I think that's just what VAR do anyway. They just press pause. And if they're just a bit forward or back, they just go, oh, that's fine. Don't give it. What, uh, you, mean, you mean that isn't what they do? <laughs> <laughs> They've got a VHS. They've got a VHS <laughs> yeah. and they just press stop. And then, the, and then the footage goes on for a little bit and then it just freezes and just sort of jiggles along for a bit. And then... <laughs> just somebody with very, very quick reactions to press yeah. pause as soon as it passes And then by. occasionally... So, so my... <laughs> Occasionally your dad's occasionally your dad's video to Western over the last twenty minutes of the game and say you've no idea VAR what VAR wasn't working. Sorry, Troy. Listen, it, it was dinner time for me, so maybe I wasn't focusing on the chat, <laughs> but I thought it was I thought they said it was offside. It wasn't offside, sorry, oh. sorry. But I may have been focusing on, on what was in front of me rather than what they were no, talking I, about. I think they said they didn't check it because they didn't think it was an obvious error. Um, can I ask you a football question, Wilson? Um, look, how similar are Teta's Arsenal to a Pep team? Like We'll, we'll talk about Pep letting Zinchenko and, and Jesus go in a second. But in terms of what Pep, uh, Arteta has Arsenal doing, and obviously he learned a lot under Pep, is he just sort of cut and paste that? Or is it is it markedly different or subtly different? I mean, you can see the lines of influence, I think, quite clearly. But I see. I think this is. Um, I think this is interesting in regard to Xavi. So, my suspicion increasing with Xavi is that, yeah, he played for Pep. He heard all the words being said by Pep. He took them in, and he can spout them out again. And I'm not entirely certain he's fully understood what Pep's philosophy is. He, you know, I think he, his is. Um, trying to be a carbon copy. I, I, you know, I don't get a sense that he is adapting it for his circumstances. And nothing he says in, you know, in, in post-match interviews or anything leads me to think there's any any great understanding there beyond being able to say the words that Pep used to say to him. Whereas Arteta clearly has assimilated the ideas and is using them in his own way. So I think you'd say it's a bit different now with, with Holland because that's obviously changed how City play. But that front three... Is a lot more direct, I think, than certainly than Guardiola City has ever been. I think the use of Odegaard, I don't think there's anybody who's quite in a Pep side has ever been quite so central to to creating. You know, I don't think Guardiola's really used number ten in the same way. But you know, the shape is the same, the basic principles are the same. You you, you can see that we are where the influence is. But I think you know, I think Arteta is. Has learned lessons and is applying them in the right way, which suggests he has actually learned them rather than just parroting them as I fear Javi may be doing. Joel says, Is Pep finally guilty of underthinking something? Is selling Jesus and Zinchenko to Arsenal for affordable prices and seemingly accelerating the process of catching City starting to look like a mistake? Troy. I was surprised, like you say, particularly to rivals and you're strengthening a team that needed strengthening in those areas. You know, they, they needed a a number nine or someone that could play up there, but also someone that was smarter and cleverer 
with other good players around him and 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 Jesus has proved that and I know he's 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 on a little bit of a goal scoring drought but his contributions cannot be denied um you know the creativity for Vieira for Vieira to then chip that one across the across the box and just his all-round general play so I, I remember Jim Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank in one of the earlier games in the season like criticizing him you know you need to be in the box you need to be in the box you need to be in the box but if he can do what he's continuing to do um, and be as creative a player as a goal scorer, then I don't really see the problem there. And Arsenal have benefited from that. Sivchenko has come in at a time when Tierney has had fitness problems. And so, again, has meant that they haven't had to rely on bringing him back or playing a right back over at left back. Um, and the Sivchenko has come in and, and has proved to be as good as, as what we knew. But his consistency levels are above. So you have to say that Pep has generally helped them. Um, they're five points clear. I'm sure Pep will somewhere be going, maybe I shouldn't have sold both, but he will back his team to to win the title at the end of the season. But that will be, that will be we'll have to wait and see on that one. Uh, Liverpool three, Southampton one. Uh, Klopp wasn't in the dugout, um, which I think is good that he got a, a game ban. And he afterwards said, look, I apologised. I deserved it. It's done. Uh, Liverpool are sixth, seven points off the top four with a game in hand. Um, this game is about Darwin Nunes, really. Two really good finishes, especially the first one. was a very sort of controlled and measured finished. wasn't the chaos, John, that we expect from Nunes, that touch. No, no. Uh, and and um, have, we, have we ever doubted that Nunes would score goals? I'm not sure we ever did, really. I, I think it was more his effect on the rest of the team around him that's been the, the issue in that, that chaotic element uh, doesn't fit into certainly since Thiago's been at Liverpool. It's quite a rather slicker style of play than you know you might associate with Klopp from earlier in his career. Um, but you have to say that uh, without Darwin Nunes, Liverpool will be in deeper trouble. Uh, he's done okay, and yeah, you know, we started the season on this sort of sliding scale of Nunes versus Haaland, um, and uh, after the Community Shield, it was. Yes, you know, Liverpool have won this one. And then for weeks on end, Haaland looked like the greatest thing, greatest player of all time. Uh, and then he's suddenly gone off the boil by not scoring for, what is it, two games now or Maybe something like three. that? Or From open play, might three. Might be three. Good. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, it's over for him. Yeah. <laughs> and now Nunes is the greatest player ever. And that's these are the times we live in. And... Um, uh, again, has the World Cup break come? Uh, he actually is going to the World Cup, isn't he? Um, so, you know, again, uh, I think Jurgen Klopp would probably appreciate a bit more time to work with Darwin Nunes. Uh, he may be one hoping, uh, though, uh, giving his best wishes to his player that Uruguay perhaps don't go that far and he gets a bit more time to get Nunes to do stuff like uh, bend his runs and all that type of stuff that strikers have to do. So that was the closest. That was the closest sort of keys and gray moment. Bending runs at this nonsense in my ben, day. Ben, just yeah, ra- yeah. You just ran in a straight line. What's this ridiculous yeah, exactly. idea? It, not- <laughs> no. Well, that was bending runs is a bit of a sort of two thousands concept, isn't it? Was it? Was it? It was Gibril Cisse, wasn't it? That was accused that when he joined Liverpool, um, and it actually was not a dissimilar signing. You know, like we was, but and it was. It was. Oh well, one of the reasons why it didn't work out was that Gibral Cisse didn't bend his runs. That was the 
So you, you, you just want to play, John, you just want to play Super Cup. You know that game where you were, the players were just attached and just went up and down. You knew where you stood then. Yeah, have, have bending runs gone out of the game though? That's what I need to know. That's well, do a long read. Sorry, Troy. No, I was just going to say I found the criticism rather harsh and it all came, didn't it, from the, you know, sending off against Crystal Palace and then people questioned his mentality and his, you know, whether he could stand up to the rough and tumble of the the English game, you know, but he's got as many goals as, as Jesus in, in a shorter space of time. So straight away, you kind of think to yourself, well, he's he has adapted. Um, he is putting the ball in the back of the net when Salah is not proving consistent um, at the moment. And ultimately, like we've said, with the goals that he scored recently, you know, he, he's obviously playing into the Liverpool way. Um, and you've got to praise him for that. But also, you know, the beardless Allison couple of world-class saves there you know whether he would have made those saves with a full beard i'm not sure but <laughs> i didn't you know. recognize him i was like when they said great save by allison i was like oh no the commentator is having an absolute mare here that isn't <laughs> that's not allison what other, someone should tell him surely there's a producer in the background to say that isn't allison what are you doing i had no idea i had no idea who it was i was staring at him going who on earth is that anyway um, he did you're right he was at fault for the goal wasn't he but then he did make some really good saves um there's a, a liverpool conspiracy theory around that Mo Salah Mo Salah doesn't get any penalties Robin says don't mention this situation at all three exclamation marks oh wait of course you won't what must happen for Salah to get a penalty he might have been pulled down I can see had it been given it wouldn't have been overturned but you know I haven't been studying every minute of footage of Mo Salah being fouled in the box so my apologies Um, Amali says why do pundits always refer to Alexander-Arnold as Trent I don't mean to come across as paranoid. I'm starting to think it's specifically and deliberately to annoy me. Yeah, I think early on in my pod reign, I got really yelled at for calling John Terry JT as if he was like a really close <laughs> friend. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did. I sat next to him once at a charity dinner. But I spent more time talking to Mrs. Terry about Death in Paradise. You'll be pleased to know, and she was a bit. We were both big fans, and we bonded on that. And John, John was just trying to get into the conversation. But we wouldn't let him. But he was talking to other people. Clearly, let's go to Fulham. Fulham one, Manchester United two. Graham says he's gone over versus Almiron going to be the next Ronaldo v Messi. Uh, Damien, will any Mancunian eatery be adding garnachos to their menu? How will they prepare said dish? For what it's worth, I think it'll be a nacho-based version of chips and gravy. Uh, you were there, Wilson. Uh, how was it? It was a really enjoyable game. I had a lovely time. I thought Fulham were the better side for most of the game. Um, certainly all the second half until Garnacho came on, they... Yeah, Fulham had all the threat. Um, I think United really missed Diego Dalot, uh, suspended. Um, William and um, Robinson down the left caused all kinds of problems for Fulham. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's twice in successive weeks that Fulham have conceded late goals to drop points against Manchester clubs. Um, Marcus Silva was clearly pretty annoyed about that, but they, they played well in both, well, particularly today. I thought they played really well and very unfortunate. But United got the win and... Um, they're now, what, three points off fourth, having played a game more. Would you say, John, things are, are looking up for Manchester United? Where, where are they looking? Up, sideways? Certainly not down, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if you, you go after the Brighton and Brentford game, it looks, you know, all doomed and, you know, it, 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 it's, well, it, the cliche these days, isn't it, is trust the process. And so far, Ten Hag has not done anything 
to to mean that anyone's going to distrust him with that process because uh, I mean actually Garnacho the, the the match winner um, interesting the way that he's been introduced obviously he scored those goals in the League Cup but he's introduced uh, while receiving a bollocking which I think is an interesting way to which is Ten Hag saying and also uh, it was Bruno Fernandez wasn't it saying. His attitude stinks, but he's really good, <laughs> which which appears to be... He's like Barry, isn't and, he? And, you know, that's yeah, just... yeah. And, and, but there is no doubt in his talent. Uh, the, the rivalry that I was thinking of uh, is that, obviously, Manchester City have uh, Julian Alvarez, who I think is three years older, actually. But, you know, maybe that's the, you know, the which who's got the better Argentinian in Manchester? That might be the thing. But, I mean... He he's an exciting young talent, um, and beyond that, actually, I did think United until he came on looked a bit old, if I may say. Uh, Ericsson obviously scored. Casemiro again. Both of those players are possibly looking a bit towards Qatar, and uh, you know, le- how much leg room they're going to get on the flight or something like that, and perhaps a little distracted and actually. Like Jonathan, I would say Fulham were the better team. And I've seen Fulham quite a bit this season and they seem to be the better team in just about every game I've seen them and perhaps aren't getting the results. And I suppose the obvious thing to say is that if Mitrovic had been there, there's a couple of balls that fizzed across the box that you thought if Mitro was around, those are going in. Um, And one player I should mention, I thought was very good in the game uh, and is a player that I think quite a lot of people thought his time was over, is William has, has been... Excellent this season for Fulham. Yeah. I also thought for the goal, I thought it could quite work out how Garnacho got there. Like it just felt like there were like four Fulham players who were definitely going to get that ball. But yeah, he is he's quick, isn't he? That helps. And he says with five weeks of preparation, who is best placed for the next round of the Carabao Cup games? United front three of Sancho, (laughs) McTominay, and Garnacho should be too much for Burnley, question mark. Thank you, Andy. Um, Bruno Fernandez speaking to Sky Sports after the game about the World Cup said it should be done in a better way. We know the surroundings of the World Cup, what has been in the past few weeks, few months, about the people that have died on the construction of the stadiums. We are not happy about that at all. So it's actually quite strong to hear a player come out and say that. So we applaud you. Uh, Many times I've been annoyed by Bruno Fernandes moaning at someone or falling over into players or just generally being quite annoying as a footballer. But I uh, applaud you for saying those things. And that'll do for part two. Uh, Part three, we'll do the rest of the Premier League and any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Bournemouth three, Everton nil. Is is Wilson, you know, to lose once, to get hammered once away at Bournemouth in a week is, you know, could be unlucky. To do it twice is, what, carelessness, would you suggest? I think it's a sign of not being particularly good at the moment. Yeah, everybody got very excited because Everton had those six games in a row where they didn't concede huge numbers of goals. And, oh, yeah, Frank sorted out the defence. Well, no, he'd signed two really good centre-backs. He'd chucked themselves in the way of everything uh, and not played any particularly good teams in that run which makes it easier to concede fewer goals. So I, I think all those issues we've highlighted throughout Lampard's managerial career about the inability to structure a defence, none of them have gone away. Having said that, I think on Saturday, uh, a lot of the problems were individual errors. That I think Pickford was well, certainly at fault for the first one, I think a little bit at fault for the second, although he did have the issue with Tarkovsky lying semi-conscious in the middle of the box, which I think the game should have been stopped for that. But you know that, that's a little bit of a red herring. I, th- I think the, you know, the game should have been stopped. 
but Bournemouth absolutely battered them. So Connor Cody said we need to take a long, hard look in the mirror as players. Troy, does that does that include injured players as well, or are they do they they don't have to <laughs> take a long, hard look in the mirror? I think the injured players get a little bit of a of a pass, and um, particularly those that haven't stepped right. foot on the field of play this season at all. Um, listen, I'm hearing that story far too many times, and that shows an issue that is far great, far greater than even what we visibly see on the field of play. Because Jonathan's right, they were absolutely battered in the same way they were absolutely battered in midweek. You know, there's two games left before you have a long break. One, I don't know why a, personally, I don't know why a weakened team was put out against Bournemouth in the first game, almost as if the cup doesn't matter. So a cup run doesn't matter to Everton. And that gives Bournemouth the upper hand. You know, they didn't win 1-0, 2-1. They beat them 4-1. And that must give them the upper hand, knowing that four days later, they're going to play them again. And Everton didn't get out of didn't get out of gear at all, and it's for me massively worrying signs. Yes, they have signed two really good defenders, but again, that only lasts for so long. And all of a sudden, there's the similar traits that happened for a lot of, of for the reason why Frank was put in charge and and hasn't stopped that rot um, is creeping into play. And and uh, listen, I think everyone saw the scenes at the end of the game. Those fans who. I always come on this pod and say how incredible they can be. Uh, I've started to turn. They've started to turn again in the same way that they turned against Rafa Benitez's Everton. Um, and when it gets that way, there's not there's not a lot. I think that this break, this is one manager where the break has come at just the right time. Um, and he needs to think about what he does by the time they come back in um, on Boxing Day. Brian says, are Everton unmanageable? To which Patrick replied, that's the best question I've ever seen for a football podcast. Are they, are they, is it an impossible, is it the impossible job? Not the best question he's ever seen. Well, he hasn't listened to many pods then, has well. he? Um, <laughs> listen, I, listen, there are obviously problems behind the scenes at the football club that still haven't been addressed. And it's almost like, you know they they've got Frank in to stop the kind of the the kind of all the hate that was leveled at the board, and Frank has taken some of that pressure away because the fans found him likable. Um, although his record is very similar, I understand to Rafa Benitez's record, but at some stage that board is no matter what they're doing with the new ground and what everything else, they want them out and they want new owners in, and until they get new owners in and and people potentially, we, we can't say this, that care about the football club. I think that they're, they're just going to have, the, you know, they're fall from bottom. They're going to have a similar season to last year. And everyone said, you know, at the end of last season, we never want to be in this position again. Or you're in exactly the same position as what you were last year. Well, I think it's worse. I think I, I, I think it's, or maybe not worse than the end of last season, but worse than this time last year. Yeah, yeah. Because they had the amount of money then and they don't have that now. And that is leaving a black hole that I'm not sure how it's going to be filled. Good shout. And Solomon Rondon is a year older as well. Yeah. So, you know, that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the decline's <laughs> come in the past 12 months, in fairness. <laughs> um, look, Gary O'Neill did his lap of honour. Uh, look, Bournemouth are brilliant in this game. That really deserved their win. Is it harsh that he doesn't get the job, John, if he doesn't get it, which we think he won't? Is it harsh, but possibly right? Or should he definitely get it? When the talk is Bielsa, which I, I uh, still have me doubts if that will come off, I, I must say. It was a, 
I mean, you know, look, it was a few years ago now, but it was a real surprise that he did go to Leeds and uh, in the first place. So I think I'd, when you think of like caretakers doing a good job, I always cast back to Tony Parks, uh, Blackburn legend, who did that job many times and was really good as a caretaker. And then there was one season where it felt like they'd actually given him the job full time. And it didn't go very well. And I think that's when they got in Graham Soonest. But um, I, I I don't know. Um, and uh, Jonathan remember Malcolm Crosby, wasn't he? A, 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 I'll never forget Malcolm Crosby. Malcolm, yeah. Malcolm Crosby was a caretaker manager and did a good job. And then as soon as he got the job, it did... Well, they gave, they gave him the job full time between the semi-final and final of the FA Cup. And it was the worst thing they could have yes, done. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> those, those are the examples. And, and you know, listen, Gary O'Neill is not the same as Malcolm Crosby or, or Tony Parks, but it's a different era. But... Um, I, I saw Bournemouth through the week, and um, he, <laughs> he he seems to almost seem like he could be a Premier League manager because he's good at moaning about the referee and, and the style of the the old stages. Um, but I and and I think he's been quite evasive on the question of he clearly wants the job, but is I, I suspect is quite defeatist about the prospects of getting it. Uh, so he was asked, wasn't he, you know, well, what, what about that? You think you could get the job? And it's like, you know, I just want to thank the players and all that. It was almost as if he was accepting of it. It seems unfair, but it's possibly the right decision. And actually, it's pr- it's probable that whoever takes the job, Bournemouth go down and Gary O'Neill comes out looking OK, whatever happens. So uh, West Ham nil, Leicester 2. Leicester's first seven games, worst defence in Premier League history after seven games, says Steve. Next eight games, six clean sheets, three goals conceded. Some turnaround, isn't it? They, they, John, are good again. They are, they are. Um, and Brendan Rodgers, he, he's, he was subject to those wild rumours you might receive on a Monday morning. Rodgers gone, that type of message that you receive. And he didn't go. Um, and there was some talk that uh, that he might want to go. But he hasn't He hasn't gone. And he's actually done a very good job because underneath it all, Brendan Rodgers is quite a decent manager. Now, is Brendan Rodgers known as a, as a supreme organiser of the defence? Well, no, you can't really say that, can you? But what he has done, uh, in, I'm not sure if all the credit should head in this direction, but Mount Feist, who you know, obviously was missing at the start of the season, appears to have been a revelation. So I suppose that's that's one of those things where if you aren't a great organiser of a defence, get get a player in your team who might be able to organise it for you. And that appears to be what's gone on. Um, all credit to them, to Leicester. Um, good to see James Madison scoring. A bit of a worry to see him pulling up with an injury. But all seems to be OK there. That did look like that. There's always one player, isn't there, before, you know, the Premier League. I remember Kieran Dyer was the final Premier League weekend, just in tears before one World Cup. And it, it didn't seem to happen this weekend. So I was glad about that. Um, and then, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm don't know if sure you might want to push this on, but David Moyes is another manager who uh, has 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 uh, his will, has his training camp come at the right time or has it not? I don't know. Yeah, Ashley says, when do West Ham bite the bullet and say thanks for the Europa League memories, David? But it's time to go. The Conference League has papered over too many cracks. Any mid-table Premier League club could do well in it. How much time would you give him? Wilson, how much time would you give David Moyes? Well, I wouldn't have appointed him, but now that he's in the job, he's done far better than I thought he was going to do. And West Ham have never finished in the top seven three seasons in a row. So 
yeah, had had they repeated last season's performance this season, it would have been yeah the, the greatest one of the season, three successive seasons in the club's history. I think to be talking about him leaving the job now is astonishingly harsh. Um, you know, a load of players came in the summer. I think there's legitimate questions as to whether the sort of players that Moyes will get the best out of. But I think he at least deserves the, the time, the, the, you know, a chance to to try and put them together. And again, I'm not West Ham puzzle me because every time I watch them, when they're at home, they get handed a load of goals that shouldn't count. When they're away, they always play really well and don't win. So I just I feel that their results have got absolutely nothing to do with their performances. <laughs> they're completely dislocated at the moment. And that's another reason I think nobody should sort of jump to conclusions about them. Um, look, I want to talk about the England squad and I want to talk a bit about Qatar. So I, um, unless you have hugely interesting things to say about Brighton Villa or Forest Should Palace, have been a penalty, Max. Um, Brighton Villa should have had a penalty or Brighton should have had a penalty, sorry. I agree with Troy on that one, yes. There you go. And Wilf Sahar okay. missed his third pen okay. in four so, out of the last four. So that's a good stat, that is. Why is he still on pen? That is a good stat. Um, so look, well done Unai Emery and my apologies especially to Villa and Forest fans who'd want more but look, the England squad is out you all know what it is now um, we didn't think Madison was in he is in uh, Wilson, do you think um, I, I really enjoyed the sort of rage circle of people being furious that he wasn't going to be picked and then furious that he was picked because he was only picked because Gareth Southgate thought that he want, people wanted him to be picked and now are furious that he's not going to start I enjoyed that rage circle but Given that Chilwell and James are injured, it kind of opened the door for Southgate to make actually not that many difficult choices, I thought. Yeah, I mean, we've already talked a bit about Ivan Tony. I think he's the one who's really unlucky to miss out. But at the same time, yeah, it's a straight choice between him and Callum Wilson. Is Callum Wilson stealing a place in the squad? Well, clearly not. He's clearly also a really good player in pretty good form at the moment. So, you know, I think you could argue that one either way. I, I guess Ivan Tony's unlucky that Callum Wilson's hit one of his rare spells of being fit for six weeks in a row to miss out. Madison, um, I, 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 I just, Southgate will not have picked somebody because of public pressure. Southgate is very much his own man. Uh, he said after those terrible Nations League performances in June that he, he, you know, he'd, he'd begun to compromise and those results and those performances had been a, a wake-up call to him that he had to go back to his principles. So I think particularly now, he wasn't going to let himself be browbeaten. I think he's picked Madison because Madison's in great form. And Madison is a player who, if you need to break up a game with 20 minutes to go, he can do something. Um, in the same way that Grealish, I think, is unlikely to start games at the World Cup. But he can come off the bench, run against tired defenders and um, create things, win, win free kicks, win penalties. So... I think Madison inclusion makes sense, but I think it would also be pretty surprising if he starts because the people he's up against are Phil Foden and Mason Mount, and they're both really, really, really good footballers. Right, what do you make of the squad, John? Are you happy? Are England going to win the World Cup? Do you How excited slash not excited are you about this whole competition? <laughs> Am I excited about this whole competition? No, because it's just weird, isn't it? That's the 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 whole issue of it. Um, yeah, I mean, listen. If, if you work in this industry like we all do, I've had to involve myself in a couple of previews and looking ahead to it. But it's still 
because there isn't that build-up, we go straight to a week, there hasn't been that, that sense of anticipation. It's just sort of arrived, but it's always been on the horizon, well, not considering what would happen, and here we are. And thinking about the England squad, I was thinking about who are the players that will not play? <laughs> that was one of the issues I had. And um, Connor Cody would be one, though I do think he's a good player. And you're into this good Tories thing that I mentioned before. Um, Connor Gallagher as well. Maybe it's all the Connors. And the 26-man squad's big, and I know there's more substitutions these days, but that's a lot of hanging around to do. It depends how long England are there. And it is £15 a pint of Budweiser, so I don't know if Connor Gallagher's going to be up for that. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, he doesn't... I, yeah, And, you know, I mean, Jonathan will be there this time next week. Is that right? Uh yeah, I go on Thursday. I tell you, I'm, yeah. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't play a five with a pint of Budweiser. It's only ten fifteen quid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if, uh, Qatar v Ecuador. I know they changed the date of it. Um, it's been on our uh, on our horizons for so long. It's the one we've all been waiting for. Look, we've recorded some specials, and they'll go out this week along with our previews. Uh, talking about the off-the-pitch stuff as well. Speaking of which, Henry says, what are the panel going to shred in solidarity with Joe Lysett versus Qatar and David Beckham? He said he'll put £10,000 of his own money into a shredder in a week's time if David Beckham doesn't end his multi-million pound deal with Qatar to promote the World Cup. Uh, He said he'd donate the money to charity if Beckham agreed to cut ties with the World Cup host. Um, But if not, the footballer's status as a gay icon will be shredded along with the cash in a live stream next Sunday before the opening ceremony. Uh, Look, we talked about sort of Beckham's hypocrisy on the last pod. Um, I think what's fascinating, Troy, is how few people within the game have called out his hypocrisy. You know, he he was the front page of Attitude magazine. He's talked a lot about being an ally with the LGBTQ plus community. And that just cannot fit with being an ambassador for Qatar. Max, money talks. Let's be realistic. You know, at the be all and end all. But how much? But how much money do you need? Like, like, fine. Like, if, like somebody offered you one hundred and fifty million pounds, I would kind of understand. I think it'd be a bit of a weird choice, given your. your yeah, job I understand title. that. But money, money breeds money, and when you have money, you just want more, and more money. And values and principles go out the window. And unfortunately, I think with this World Cup, there's a lot of values and principles that have gone out the window from the silence of the nations that were trying to qualify, from. You know, the very low-key conversations in this space by very prominent figures, by people taking money. Um, and also, and I know you praised Bruno Fernandes earlier, but for me, isn't that a little too late? Isn't that what we should have been hearing all the way along in this conversation? Because everyone knows, you know, the human rights issues that are surrounded by this World Cup um, and the reason why they were awarded the World Cup. So uh, I... I haven't been invested in it so far. I'm not saying that I won't watch a game or whatever, but it just doesn't feel right to me and it hasn't felt right for a very long time. And I get it, the focus around David Beckham. Gary Neville's been called out quite a bit. I get it. I understand it. But uh, these guys, money just creates money for these guys. And and, and ultimately, they're doing, they're choosing what they do and are throwing everything else that they've aligned themselves to out the window. And it's, it's, just, it's one of those things. And... They're not the only ones, and it's something that, you know, the World Cup will pass, we'll get a winner, we'll glorify in the winner, we'll start our seasons back again, and and everything will be forgotten again. So, for me, the whole scenario of this World Cup has been embarrassing for for football far and beyond, to be totally honest. No, like, I, I don't disagree with anything you said. I guess I guess on, on Bruno Fernandes, I guess, you're, you know, it depends what your expectations of people are and and 
Um, Max, and, Max and I'm not criticizing you. you. I, I'm not criticizing you. No, 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 no. I'm, I, yeah. I, I didn't think you were. I, I was talking about Bruno Fernandes mm. about um, like what our expectations of, of footballers are. And like when Klopp sort of said, oh, you know, like, it shouldn't be up to footballers. They're not human rights activists. And I kind of agree with that. But they are still like humans who live in the world, right? They, they can be made aware of these things. But, you know, if you compare... You know, Eddie Howard sort of said, look, I'm a football man. I can only talk about football. It's a slightly different scenario, right? Because he doesn't want to talk about his bosses and Fernandez has distance between what he's saying and, you know, the, the World Cup. But the footballers carry the most weight in this space, Max. Regardless of whatever we think, the player, whether people think that they should be talking about human rights or politics or, or whatever it may be, they have the most powerfulest voice in this space, bar none, bar none. So I would have expected players to have spoken up long before this time but ultimately, they have their, their own kind of situation to protect. They'll speak when they want to speak, and they'll only speak when they want to speak. They won't be pushed into a situation. So, you know, we're a week away. Bruno's spoken. Happy days. But for me, it, it, it's just too, it's too late. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I totally agree with what Troy said. And I think uh, in, within that silence from uh, journalists from uh, for some journalists not every journalist of course from certain broadcasters like like Gary Neville who's gone to work for the Qatari broadcaster like David Beckham uh and but beyond those people that actually put themselves up front the, the silence of people you are letting the Qatar World Cup go ahead unnoticed and this idea of well is the man in the street really bothered about this and able to your your silence allows this to go ahead yeah uh, look and well hopefully we will get the balance right throughout the tournament um howard says why are we talking about this last weekend when most of us are just carrying on with our teams playing football um it's a very good point isn't it the league one league two just carrying on the championship comes back on december the 10th it must be weird for those players right if you're a professional footballer you've never had a game like you know if you play for Aquington and there's a world cup game and you're like well I mean, I, I, maybe it won't, won't. Obviously, you go to work. People go to work and watch the World Cup. But it just might be slightly odd for the players to be part of that. I suppose it, it's got it's gone on in club rugby and cricket or whatever for years. Point. There's always World Cups ticking over. So true. why should football be different? I don't know if you've read Simon Haddenstone's brilliant piece about 1990, the semi-final. He's tried to catch up with all the England semi-finalists from 1990. He speaks to Lineker and Paul Parker and Peter Shilton and Terry Butcher and Mark Wright, amongst others. Um, But he also talks about the journey of trying to get in touch with everybody. And his conversation with David Platt, I thought was fascinating, where David Platt just replied to a text going, I'm afraid I don't do media anymore. And Simon texted him back and said, his reply is fuller and more interesting than I expect. This is what David Platt said. He said, I've reached a point in my life where I'm fortunate to be able to live as I choose within reason. I have a couple of business interests that keep me occupied, play my golf, walk the dog, watch my boy play sport. There's no need to retain my profile because I'm happy living how I am. I don't need to be in the public eye. I don't need to be recognised. It's exciting searching for anonymity. Um, So obviously the question on the back is, have you seen David Platt? Can we find David Platt? But that's not what David Platt wants. But I just was quite refreshing to hear somebody say, you know, that was a part of my life. This is a different part of my life. So good luck. Good luck to you, David Platt. In fact, on one um, uh, one text topic we did on the radio going, has a footballer ever done you a favour or done like a service for you? Some bloke texted in and said, I ran out of petrol and I was trying to push my car up a hill and a man got out of theirs and started pushing up the hill and I was pushing with him and I looked to my left and it was David Platt. That'd be quite a surprise, wouldn't it? Uh, anyway, that'll do for today. Mark says, no, Barry, is he over in LA with Susanna? No, do not 
we don't need to push this rumor anymore. <laughs> Barry is not going out with the wow. bangles. Um, uh, all right, and that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Troy. Absolute pleasure, Max, as always. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jonathan. Cheers, thank you. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. Our World Cup countdown will begin on Tuesday. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 